Good Wednesday and welcome to Ozarks at Large for March 23rd, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellums and this is KUAF 91.3, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Ahead this hour, the second part of our series about rising suicide rates among black people in Arkansas. And a highlight from the first episode of the new KUAF-produced podcast, Resilient Black Women, a twice-monthly discussion about mental health for all, but especially for black women and women of color. We start our hour with thoughts about what's underground, how that material is pulled up, and what that process can mean, the booms and the busts. Next fall, Tony Jensen, an associate professor of English and Indigenous Studies at the University of Arkansas, who teaches creative writing and is the author of the book Carrie, a memoir of survival on stolen land, will lead the Honors College Symposium Extractions. She'll deliver an overview of the semester-long class Monday evening at 5.15 via Zoom. That presentation is free and open to the public. We recently used Zoom to connect with her and ask her about what will be discussed in the class next fall with Honors College students. And the literal process of fracking and extracting natural gas and, and oil also from the earth, right? I mean, I think that's what a lot of people think of when they think of extractions, but we're going to get into the human costs. And so what's extracted from a community or a place other than the, the mineral, the oil, the gas, the resources themselves, who profits from that, who is harmed by that, what happens to a community after the extractive industries leave. And so we'll be focusing mostly on oil and gas, but also branching out into timber and water and some other um, resources, too, that are that are affected by extraction. So. There will be science. There will be the environment. There will also be, I imagine, discussion of just how we as a society operate. I mean, turning on the lights, turning on the faucet, things like that. Yes, all of that. And also how this impacts in our day-to-day lives, our narratives, too. Since I come from a writer's background, I teach creative writing at the university and literature. And also, since I'm an Indigenous person, I'm Meti, I consider this from a marginalized stance, too. So, so who is impacted when um, frackers or oil and gas industries more broadly or timber decides to come onto reservation lands um, or come into a small town even, you know, more broadly? Um, who's affected by that and who has a say? Who gets to say no and who gets to say yes to what happens on their land? So we'll look at property rights. So there's some law in there, too. We'll look at jurisdictional issues, but also narrative and who whose stories get told. What is the narrative of progress? What is the narrative of resistance to progress? Who is a protester versus a water protector? Right. We'll look at the language of all of this and talk about how narrative is shaped and how policy shapes narrative and how narrative shapes policy. So that's that's what I'm most interested in in these discussions. I how do you structure then? How do you get ready for this? Because there's a lot to cover, and and you use the word narrative a couple times. So can you keep? Do you try to keep a, for lack of a better word, a narrative going through the semester? Yes, absolutely. We're going to start out with the basics of how things work because I'm fascinated also by science and technology and, and, and the literal of, of how uh, fracking works. Let's say it's really interesting how that technology was developed. So we'll start with readings on the history of extractive industries, fracking first. And then, so we'll go into processes and then we'll look at narrative next. And, and so then as the processes are developing, what are the stories being told about that? What is it saying in the newspapers, right? What are what are people starting to write in literature? Um, and then later after the beginning, you know, what does film have to say? And so, or television. And so we'll talk about, um, process first and then narrative second. And then in the, the last part of the semester, we'll put it all together and talk about narrative and process. Obviously, this will be covering some very contemporary discussions and issues. But when you're talking about property rights and mineral rights and timber rights on land, you probably will go back centuries when some of this much, of, if not all of this land was just sort of taken in uh, the advance of Manifest Destiny? Yes, absolutely. And that phrase, Manifest Destiny, we will interrogate um, pretty rigorously in the class. And so what does that mean when you say something is someone else's Manifest Destiny, which sounds so grand and so glorious and so prosperous? And yet, 
already there are people living on the land. And so concepts of land ownership from the beginning to the present will be at issue in the class and will be discussed. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it'll be a really interesting discussion, especially for students who have come from maybe a suburb, right? They maybe have never thought about who owned that land before or the history of their own places that they grew up. So more broadly, this is going to be an investigation of place and who gets to call it theirs. I think anytime you're dealing with extractions and extractive industries, that's really what's at issue. Who feels tied to a place? Who feels ownership over it? Who feels the right to come in and take from it? Um, how we all need oil and gas currently in America, right? But also, what are the everyday costs of that? So the first part, when you're talking about the process, how fracking or how oil is certainly extracted, I mean, there are specifics about that. Later, when you're talking about the other kind of extraction, what this can do to a community, what this can do to, you know, people, that gets, I guess, a little bit less, obviously less technical, but even a little bit more, what, um, vague or or harder to define? Because not all definitions across the board would be the same. Yeah, that's where narrative is really important. People's stories, landowners' stories, either are prospering from having you know, oil and gas come onto their land or the more regular story of, well, we were promised this and then instead this is what we actually got. Um, also, I think I'm most interested too in community stories. So in small boom and bust oil towns, fracking towns in North Dakota, for example, you know, for a long time, women who were clerks at grocery stores during the biggest height of the boom had to have male colleagues walk them to their cars at night because incidents of sexual assault, rape, um, all sorts of terrible things were happening, all sorts of crime. And so, you know, I think that's the hidden cost of all of this is what literally happens. You get a new elementary school, you get brand new buildings, you get, you know, shiny new things, infrastructure, but what happens to women who work in the hotels? What happens to the women who are, you know, clerks at night at the grocery stores? What happens to the hotel workers? And then what happens to the hotels after two? They're just empty once the boom goes bust. And so the cost, the prosperity and the cost and how all of that's balanced um, when we when we think about our oil and gas needs, that's not something we talk about in a lot of depth in this country very often. So yeah, that's what we're going to talk about in the class. I think this is going to have such um, emotion to it. I mean, when you're talking about people's lives, when you're talking about some place where people have lived for generations or centuries, and I'm wondering, have you thought about that, the balance that there will be some emotional material in here, but it's still an academic exploration? Yes. Anytime you're dealing with people's land and their families and, and things that go back, you know, through history and generations, there will be heartstrings, there will be emotional ties. And I think that's what makes for an interesting learning environment is not falsely separating our feelings from socioeconomic issues. Because when you make that separation, it becomes a purely academic discourse about other people. But when we talk about well, where are we from? What, what land were we raised on? You know, what land do we hope to live on someday? Who does that belong to? Who lived there first? Um, what rights do we have inherently? What responsibilities do we have inherently? then emotions do come in and it's harder to separate. And I think the harder it is to separate, the better it is for all of us because then we're going to live our lives in a more aware way. Yeah, harder to separate. I mean, to the fact, I remember being in Las Vegas once and it was 100 degrees and I'm walking by this house with this lush green lawn that should not be there, right? I mean, you've got to work pretty hard to have a lush green lawn in Las Vegas. I get back to the hotel room, I turn on the shower thinking, I'm, an, I'm a part of this equation. Wherever this water is coming from, whatever happened to get that water, which I want at the time because I want a shower, right? So we're never disconnected. Yeah, and water is a good example of that. So the Colorado River is probably where that water comes from. And so, you know, if you if you live in the great state of Colorado right now, you are legally prohibited from collecting rainwater in a rain barrel in your own backyard because the state owns that water. And mostly the reason you're prohibited from having a rain barrel in your backyard is because the state 
is selling that water and has been selling that water to places like Las Vegas. And so how all of that works is super fascinating. Um, who owns what and why? And that water rights will be the next, you know, oil boom sort of situation, of course. And we will be covering that a little bit too, especially in the context of fracking, which uses so much water. And of course, fracking, you know, you don't have to look geographically too far from whatever classroom you're in to know that fracking has been something that's taken place. Absolutely. I taught in Pennsylvania and in West Texas before coming to University of Arkansas. And so, I, I, yeah, I was very situated in, in frack lands. And, you know, we're not that far here either from Oklahoma, where where oil and gas exploration, you know, is linked to earthquakes, for example. And so scientifically linked, also not just um, theoretically linked. And so, yeah, I think all of that is is definitely a all across the country sort of problem for sure. I know that part of this is a public lecture. How do you decide what you're going to put in maybe a 50 or 60 minute lecture that just gives an overview of what will be a semester-long signature seminar series? I actually think that's more difficult than teaching the class itself, definitely. So my plan for that lecture is to to talk about my own personal experience going to Standing Rock and um, being there with the water protectors a few, uh, more than a few years back now, and also how that affected me and my research. So there'll be the narrative aspect, right? And then I'll go over... Um, you know, the broad brushstrokes of why this is important locally, regionally, nationally, um, why these, why the students have their own personal, um, their own personal lives and issues at stake here that, you know, they're connected to, to place and land. And um, yeah, so we'll talk a little bit about race, class, gender factors, and in who benefits or is harmed by extractive practices. And so I'll pose the bigger questions and elucidate in the lecture how we might be wrestling with those questions in this class. Tony Jensen is an associate professor of creative writing and indigenous studies at the University of Arkansas, the author of Carrie, a memoir of survival on stolen land. She'll lead the University of Arkansas Honors College Symposium Extractions next fall. On Monday, she'll give a free public lecture about the class via Zoom. That talk is scheduled to begin at 5.15, and we have a link at ozarksatlarge.com where you can fill out a pre-registration form to watch that Monday evening presentation. This is... Ozarks at Large. Fayetteville Roots presents The Steel Wheels at the Fayetteville Public Library on Sunday, April 24th at 7.30 p.m. This Roots Rock and Bluegrass band is a fan favorite from the Fayetteville Roots Festival. The Steel Wheels perform energetic music infused with personal storytelling. FayettevilleRoots.org for tickets and more information. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art features free spring break activities March 19th through the 25th. Activities include art making, performances in the Great Hall, gallery talks, and concludes with Art in Bloom, where local florists display floral arrangements alongside works of art in the galleries. Event schedule and more information at crystalbridges.org. Talk Business and Politics reports jobless rates across Arkansas were higher in January than in December but still lower when compared to January 2021. Northwest Arkansas's January jobless rate was 2.6%, just more than a point decline in year-to-year comparisons. The Fort Smith Metro in January dropped by a point and a half to 3.5% when comparing January 2022 to January 2021. The state added just more than 24,000 new jobs in that 12-month span. The COVID-19 patient count in Northwest Arkansas continues to decline. The combined report for hospitals in Washington and Minton counties, now 14, that's one fewer patient than this time yesterday. Nonprofits serving people with developmental disabilities can apply for as much as $160,000 in grant funding for new projects. The Governor's Council on Developmental Disabilities is opening a request for proposals from advocacy groups to apply for funding for developmental disability inclusion projects. John Taylor, the council's executive director, says soliciting ideas from community groups and nonprofits is essential to furthering the council's goals. We have a very small staff here at the council, so we couldn't possibly do all those things ourselves. So by making this funding available to different you know, community organizations and nonprofits, 
we're able to advance the work of the council through all of these different subgrantees. Uh, this year, we're offering them, it's half a million dollars, and we'd like to fund three projects with that this year. So we're just excited to see what's going to come out and be part of that. Taylor says the council works to involve more people with developmental disabilities in advocacy efforts and to connect them with resources, as well as supporting projects that improve employment opportunities. Proposals are due by Tuesday, April 13th. You can find out more at gcdd.arkansas.gov. And if you live in Bentonville and could use a free tree, make a note about Saturday, April 23rd. Bentonville's 23rd consecutive annual tree giveaway is that day at the Municipal Complex on Southwest Municipal Drive. Trees will be available from 8 until 10 that morning. Species are expected to include Arkansas Black Apple, Wisconsin Weeping Willow, Hackberry, and the delightfully named Strawberry Smoothie, as well as others. About 500 trees will be available to Bentonville residents. A pre-registration link is available at bentonvillear.com. If you don't pre-register, you take your chances with a first-come, first-served basis on April 23rd. Hey, I'm Elsa Chang. News headlines don't always give you the whole story, just like a puddle in the street. You never know how deep it might be until you get a closer look. And at All Things Considered from NPR News, we help you understand the depth of every story, big or small, so that you can navigate the world and avoid getting into deep water. Listen every afternoon. You can hear All Things Considered every weekday afternoon from 3 to 6 on KUAF. Thanks for being with us for this midweek version of Ozarks at Large. If you miss a noon or 7 p.m. broadcast of our show, no worries. You can ask your smart speaker to play Ozarks at Large and instantly hear the latest daily show. And you can carry us with you when you subscribe to the podcast version of Ozarks at Large. Find it where you find other podcasts. And that's where you can find other podcasts produced at the Carver Center for Public Radio, too. The first episode of Resilient Black Women is ready for you. The twice-a-month show is hosted by counselors Denisha Simpson and Joy McGowan and is dedicated to conversations about mental health and access to mental health for all, but especially black women and women of color. Today, a bit from that first episode, we pick up after Joy has asked Denisha about the idea for the podcast. Growing up as um, a young black female, we just didn't have a lot of safe spaces in the community outside of our home and church. And so, um, Joy, I came to you and said, I'm really passionate about creating the safe space for black women. And then it became even bigger than that, right? Like, but we all struggle with the same thing. So let's create this space for everyone um, with the idea that we have spaces for black women. Absolutely. I love what you're saying, right? Because we're trying to recognize that mental health impacts all of us. <laughs> but what I'm hearing you say is that there weren't a lot of people that look like you talking about this particular topic. Right. There weren't a lot of people who looked like you telling you how they made it through, telling you like, hey, this is how you're going to survive college at a predominantly white institution, mm -hmm. right? Like, so I think this is truly something that we get to give back to this community of like, hey, we made it through grad school, undergrad. <laughs> We're working in this community. We are passionate about the community. And this is one way that we can give back. Absolutely. As we get started, we want to kind of break down a little bit about um, how what you can expect from us. So we want to do this thing, which is kind of called, we call it a check-in. Uh, Denise and I, we work as therapists. And so when we get started with our own clients, we always kind of do like a personal check-in with our clients of like, hey, how you doing? How you really doing? What is it like to come back? And so we want to kind of be authentic in that way with you all, with our audience, of always opening up with some type of personal check-in. And then closing our podcast episodes with this personal act of like gratitude. Um, and then throughout this episode, we're going to really break down some of these terms, the terms of like being resilient, being black and being female. Tanisha, let's start off with the check-in. How you doing, sis? I'm doing great. Um, if I'm being honest, I was a little nervous coming in, but I think that my nerves are settling and my excitement is just overcoming the nerves. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> also nervous. I don't think I slept very well last night just thinking through everything we're going to say yes. today <laughs> and making sure like, I knew all the right words to say. Right. I definitely felt nervous um, mm -hmm. and I could even feel like my body 
um, just having to settle uh, into this place, into this room, into the microphone, checking on my voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely feel that. Uh, to our audience, we truly, truly believe that listening to your body is really, really important. And so we hope that you notice that some of the times when Denisha and I check in, we really want to check in with our bodies. We really want to model that for our community of listeners um, that you should always listen to your body. So let's get started. Let's talk a little bit about these terms, resilient, black, and female. Denisha, how would you describe resilient? Um, My definition of resilient is not necessarily relying on the strength, but of other people, connection, um, being able to go through hard things and realize that it's okay not to be okay, um, and striving to um, keep going towards your goals um, and thriving, not just yeah, surviving. Absolutely. I just want to, for our listeners' sake, I want to kind of like read the definition um, of resiliency. It is the ability to adapt to difficult situations. When stress, adversity, or trauma strikes, you still experience anger, grief, and pain. But you're able to keep functioning, both physically and psychologically. And y'all, when we think through this word resiliency, um, it's not just keep going and don't stop to rest and take care of yourself. Um, resiliency actually makes room for things like creativity, things like rest, things like listening to your body and slowing down a little bit. Um, it's really just saying that no matter what has happened to you in your past, you find a way to start over. And the best example I can really give of this is is black people. Like we think about how black people came or came were stolen <laughs> from their land, from their people, from their culture, um, from their language, from their way of life, and they rebuilt it here. This is a big deal. That is what it means to be resilient, right? When I think about Black culture today, present day, I think really about Black Twitter, um, which is really funny to say, right? But Black Twitter is like reinventing so many things, and it is the talk of the world right now. There is something that um, Black Twitter has recently been saying, like, it's my piece for me. (laughs) And like that is this idea of like, I'm not going to let anything steal my peace. Like, I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to watch after myself. I'm going to say no to this guy. I'm going to walk away from this relationship. I'm going to set some healthy boundaries because it's my peace for me. And so I think there are so many things that we learn from Black culture about resiliency. We look at a people who have reinvented themselves and now are the, the group of people that everyone in the world looks after, um, wants to emulate um, from hair, from voice, from everything. Like everybody wants to. It is cool to be Black in some ways, right? Um, in other ways, not so much. <laughs> Also, the the other thing about the understanding this idea of resiliency, so we call ourselves resilient black women, we have just wanted to really process how black women ourselves are the least likely to access mental health care. That is really the passion behind the name. Um, I think oftentimes we have, well, in the development of our or of our like podcast and organization, we've had some people kind of question us about why that name. Why would you stay with that name, uh, Denisha? What do you think? Like, what have you been trying to tell people about the name? That the name represents who we are. We are resilient Black women, and so. I think in that name, it's not to exclude anyone. Um, It's just simply, this is who we are and this is what we know. And so we're coming to you with openness, honesty, and vulnerability. And so I think that best representation of resilient black women is who we are. It it is about how we represent ourselves in this world. The other thing that we want to kind of give as like the reason behind the name is what I said before, the research is clear that black, Latinx, Asian, um, indigenous women of color are least likely to access mental health support. Um, 
we are also least likely to even recognize that we are struggling with mental health. Um, Black women especially suffer with depression for longer periods of time without seeking treatment. And so this podcast is really about how do we advocate for our community and then give this information that we learned in grad school in a really tangible way that an everyday woman can just pick up and say, hey, like, Maybe I do need to see a therapist. Maybe I should call somebody. Maybe I should talk to my PCP because these baby blues is not just baby blues. <laughs> I've been kind of sad for a long time and maybe that's not okay. And so we definitely kind of want to reimagine or just like redefine what it means to be strong, what it means to be resilient. Um, we don't think that we have to carry strength and just carry it all on our backs. Joy McGowan and Denisha Simpson are hosts of the new KUAF-produced podcast, Resilient Black Women. The first episode and introduction to the podcast is out now. New episodes will be released every second and fourth Friday of the month. You can find episodes at the podcast section of KUAF.com or by subscribing to the podcast through any major podcast distributor. On the latest episode of Undisciplined, Eric Hughes discusses Interstate 630 in Little Rock and the impact its creation had on black and brown communities in the city. I personally, especially after doing this research, in in some ways agree with the sentiment that systems can't be racist. Now, I'm going to explain. Listen to Undisciplined for free wherever you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. Today, we continue with a three-part series about a rise of suicides by black people in Arkansas. According to the United Health Foundation, men are more likely to successfully carry out suicides than women. In part two of our series, Jonathan Reeves with our partner station KASU in Jonesboro talks with Counselor Shaden Duncan with MidSouth Health Systems. Duncan says men often face a cultural expectation that is more harmful to mental health than earlier realized. Um, I think a lot of that is the way that we're socialized. Boys are taught, you suck it up, you know, you get over it, be strong, you know, all of these types of things. Uh, you know, men don't cry, you know, all of those different types of things, which are not true at all. But those are the things that we're taught and those are the things that are normalized for us. And so we, you know, adopt and we buy into those types of thoughts um, and approaches to to handling things, whereas females are not taught that, you know. Um, well, in a lot of cases, I'm not going to say every female, but in a lot of cases, they're not taught there. They're not normal, socialized that way. Um, so when we, when we start looking at, you know, even suicide, suicide ideations or thoughts of suicide, females are more inclined to have them, um, statistically speaking, and they're more inclined to attempt suicide. Um, but males are more inclined to complete and then they are also more inclined to complete using more violent means. Um, for example, you know, a male may shoot himself, uh, whereas a female may um, attempt an overdose. Um, and I can't really speak to the exact reasons why that happens that way, but just statistically, we see that that is um, something that that is common, you know, when we're looking at, you know, statistics for suicide, that is something that is very common, just how people are, how people are socialized and uh, what is, what society um, has put out there as being acceptable for, you know, males versus females and how they're dealing with their emotions, how they're dealing with um, things mentally, um, their thought processes and those types of things. What do people look for specifically? Are there signs and symptoms that might serve as flags that someone is going through a mental health issue or a certain crisis in their life? So, you know, definitely we want to look for changes in behavior, changes in what might be, you know, that person's normal behaviors. Um, for example, a person who is normally, you know, outgoing and very engaging, who is now withdrawn and aloof and not as easily to engage, who is socially isolating, um, they're, you can, tell that they're having different um, thought processes just by their interactions, by how they're talking, how they're acting. Um, those are some things you want to pay attention to. Um, if their individual is talking about death or dying, um, they're, you know, sad or, you know, they seem to be anxious, they're having problems concentrating. 
you know, any of those types of behaviors. Um, obviously, if you see, you know, somebody who seems to be responding to, you know, hallucinations or those types of things, you know, those are some very um, um, apparent, you know, uh, issues that we can recognize about people when we start to see that something is going on with the person that's impacting their ability to function, basically their ability to take care of themselves, their ability to engage now in work or school or their ability to engage in their in social relationships, especially those things that they would normally have engaged in. Um, those would definitely be some things that we would want to probably, you know, give some attention to and maybe even check in with the person on. Um, and that could, you know, be initiated by a simple conversation, especially somebody that you already have a relationship with, you know, by approaching them, just letting them know the things that you've observed and, um, you know, stating your intention to try to help them or to try to help get them connected with somebody that can help them um, work through whatever those issues and whatever those problems might be that they're that they're facing or dealing with. And I would think especially if someone is facing a traumatic event in their life, like the death of a loved one or a job loss or something like that, uh, yes. that would be something that you probably would definitely want to check with a loved one to make sure that they're okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, especially when somebody's experienced a, a loss and they're kind of starting to go through those, the, the process of grief, those stages of grief, um, you know, we know that right after, at the time of the loss, that's when you have, uh, oftentimes people have the most support. Everybody knows about it. Everybody's coming. Everybody's going to show up. Everybody's going to be supportive, right? But it's, you know, after the funeral has taken place, the, bur the burial or whatever that process may happen to be for that that family or that family member, that loved one, um, oftentimes, you know, people, they start going on back to their life. And that's when the grief process starts to happen for folks because they can't go back to life like it used to be, you know, their, their life has been interrupted to a certain degree. Uh, some people to a great degree, and they're trying to figure out how to do life again, how to, how to return to this sense of normalcy. That's not normal anymore. Um, and so that's oftentimes when people really need that great degree of support, people who are checking in on them, just following up, Hey, how are you doing? You know, is there anything I can do for you? Anything you need any help with? You know, how are you sleeping? Are you eating? Are you taking a bath? You know, are you getting out of the house? Are you socializing? Have you gone back to work? Are you going to work? Go to school, you know, checking in on those things to see what they're actually doing. Because for some people, you know, when they experience those types of events, life ends, life stops for them. Um, you know, just like the life of their loved one has stopped. They, even though they're physically still here, sometimes emotionally, mentally, they've just kind of, you know, halted in place and they're not continuing to move forward or to do the things they need to do to take care of themselves. That was Shaden Duncan with Mid-South Health Systems. In tomorrow's final segment of the series, Duncan talks about how to provide help to those who are hurting. By the way, there is a crisis line number. It is 800 356 3035. Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville presents a spring break destination for family exploration through the arts and sciences and math moves. Experiencing ratio and proportion in the museum's traveling gallery. Amazium.org for tickets, information, and more. KUAF is supported by Pack Rat Outdoor Center, a small business family-owned in Fayetteville since 1973. Pack Rat offers a variety of outdoor skills clinics, including kayak basic, bushcraft skills, climbing clinics, and more. A full schedule is available online at packratoc.com. This is Ozarks at Large. It may be spring break. But Charlie Allison is back with a new piece of University of Arkansas history in honor of the school's sesquicentennial. This trip into the past focuses on an aviation pioneer. Although the pioneer aviator Amelia Earhart, whose rise to stardom and subsequent fall to immortality are well known by most Americans, many other women played equally significant roles in developing the aviation industry during the 1920s and 1930s. One of them, Iris Louise McFetridge, a student at the University of Arkansas during the 1920s, is probably not a name known to many today, but she became nearly as well known back then as Amelia Earhart. Louise McFetridge was from Bentonville and came to the university in 1922. She later wrote in her memoir, quote, Going down to the University of Arkansas at what now seems the very tender age of 15, I majored in journalism. Well, there was no formal department of journalism in the 1920s, but Murray Sheehan, an associate professor of journalism who had also served as the university's publicity writer, taught several journalism classes as part of the English department curriculum. 
Students could take newspaper writing and editing in 1921. Soon, though, Sheehan added a couple more advanced classes for students who wanted to continue in the field. Sheehan made their classwork as practical as possible by connecting the student writers and their stories with the local daily newspapers and the student newspaper, the Arkansas Traveler. McFetridge worked on the student newspaper for a short period, uh, but Murray Sheehan left the university in 1924, and perhaps this change pushed McFetridge to make a change of her own. She shifted her studies to physical education at a time when women's athletic competition was on the rise at the university. At the same time, the university built the women's gymnasium just north of Peabody Hall. Today, it houses the Army Reserve Officers Training Corps, but in 1925, it provided women a central place to play sports such as basketball and volleyball indoors for the first time. McFetridge, who had been captain of the freshman women's basketball team when it won the All-University Championship, served as head of the intramural basketball competition for the Women's Athletic Association when she was a junior. She was also noted for her field hockey play and her volleyball skills. Outside of competition, she joined the Rootin Rubes and was president of her sorority, Delta Delta Delta. And as she recalled things in her memoir, she also switched from the physical education courses to pre-medical courses. By the end of the 1925-26 school year, though, she had taken a lot of courses, but not really enough of any single discipline to get a degree. In the meantime, though, she discovered the world of aviation. During a summer break, she took a job in Wichita, Kansas, working for a company whose owner also had a stake in Travel Air, the biplane manufacturer spearheaded by Walter Beach. McFetridge spent her weekends at the factory, where she eventually met Beach, and got to go for a few airplane rides. She was enthralled. She said, quote, Before I went back for my third year of college in 1925, I had made up my mind that I could learn to fly, and furthermore, that I was going to get into aviation no matter how long or how laborious the process. Well, though a little bit laborious, the process turned out to not take too long. When McFetridge returned to Wichita the next summer, Beach offered her a job with Travel Air's new Pacific Coast distributor. She could work in the aviation business in San Francisco and learn how to fly at the same time. When she told her parents about the unbelievably good news, they found her rather unbelievable too, but unbelievably bad. <laughs> Despite their concerns, her parents allowed her to take the leap from Bentonville to the West Coast. In 1927, she flew west as a passenger in one of Travel Air's new planes and began helping with the operation of Chrissy Field, its training school and charter service. At 22 years of age, she was, as she put it, giddy with the self-confidence of youth. No task seemed too great. Within four months, she made her first solo flight. It was about the same time that Amelia Earhart became the first woman to cross the Atlantic by air, albeit keeping the flight log rather than as pilot. Early the next year, McFetridge began preparation to try to break the women's aviation record for altitude. Setting the record required not only designing a plane and engine to operate in the thin air of high altitude, but her team had to find suitable oxygen equipment for her, too. There were a few scares in the plane, including three dead stick landings in one day. Those are landings in which the engine is conked out completely, and McFetridge landed without power. Nevertheless, she set out on December 7, 1928 for the new women's altitude record and found it at 20,260 feet. The next year, she also set new women's records for speed and endurance, becoming the only woman to hold all three records at the same time. She wrote, quote, I was exalted with speed, with swift, powerful, unobstructed flight, cutting the air with knife-edged ease. Mastery, accomplishment, freedom, ego, verve, vitality. I was ready to burst with the joy of being so thoroughly alive for the ability to fly. <laughs> Somewhere in the middle of this record-setting period, she also found time to get married to one of the engineers who had worked on her planes, Herbert von Thaden. Louise McFetridge became Louise Thaden, a name that Americans across the continent would soon come to know. Thaden entered the Women's Air Derby in 1929, a cross-country race from Santa Monica, California to Cleveland, Ohio. Also competing in the race were pioneer aviators such as Pancho Barnes, Blanche Noyes, and Amelia Earhart. Besides having a lightning-quick plane, Thaden's effort in the stage race was also heightened by knowing that one of the stops going east would be in Wichita, where she reunited with her family and Walter Beach, at least momentarily. Wearing jodhpurs, knee-high boots, a white linen shirt, and a pilot's leather cap, Thaden won the Air Derby in part by simply staying in the air. Her rivals were beset by trouble. Earhart's plane was damaged slightly when landing on the sandy tarmac of the airfield at Yuma, Arizona, and she also stopped during a takeoff on the final leg of the race to help a rival whose plane had flipped upside down. <laughs> Earlier, Noyes suffered a mid-air fire over Texas. Barnes took a wrong turn and followed a rail line into Mexico before realizing her error, losing vital time in a race in which the leaders were separated by just minutes. Tragically, 
One of the pilots, Marvel Crossan, lost altitude in the Gia Mountains near Phoenix, crashed, and died in the race. Such was the state of aviation at the time. Back on the ground, Thaden was hired in 1930 as the public relations director of the Pittsburgh Aviation Industries and director of the women's division of the Penn School of Aeronautics. The same year, she and Earhart founded the 99s, an international organization for female pilots. Thaden served as the treasurer and vice president while Earhart was the president. The organization still exists today. In 1932, Earhart became the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic, landing in Ireland after nearly 15 hours. Not to be outdone, Thaden and her fellow aviator Francis Marsalis tackled what has always been the most complex problem in aviation, staying in the air. For more than eight days, the two aviators swapped out duties, piloting their flying boudoir, as the newspapers dubbed it, to a world endurance record above Long Island, New York. Aside from the difficulties of eating and sleeping, Thaden recalled the real dangers, saying, quote, There were 200 gallons of gasoline to pump every 24 hours by a hand pump, which wobbled a half pint each full stroke. There was oil to pump, rock arms to grease, batteries to change, an hourly log to keep, 101 things. They used 2,338 gallons of gasoline and 32.5 gallons of oil, all brought to their mid-air home by a refueling plane. And eventually, they claimed the record. In 1935, Thaden became a field representative for the National Air Marking Program, a federal effort to paint directions on the tops of buildings indicating where the nearest airfield could be found. That's a program that saved many future Pancho Barneses from accidentally flying into Mexico. In 1936, flying a beach staggerwing biplane, Thaden became the first woman to win the Bendix Trophy Race, the premier aeronautical race of its time for men and women. Her winning effort set a new transcontinental record of 14 hours and 55 minutes from New York City to Los Angeles. As a result of her continuing efforts, she was awarded the Harmon Trophy in 1936, given each year to honor outstanding aviators. Thaden's one-time rival and longtime friend, Earhart, had won the Harmon Trophy in 1932. Thaden wrote in her memoir that she talked to Earhart not long before she started her ill-fated attempt to circumnavigate the globe. Thaden, who had risked life and wing in many of her own exploits, tried to talk Earhart out of going. Look here, Thaden says she told Earhart. You've gone crazy on me. Why stick your neck out a mile on this round-the-world flight? You don't need to do anything more. You're tops now, and if you never do anything, you always will be. Thaden quoted Earhart as replying, You're a fine one to be talking to me like that. Aren't you the gal who flew in the last year's Bendix with a gas tank wrapped around your neck? Earhart then told Thaden, If I should bop off, it will be doing the thing I've always wanted to do most. As it turned out, Thaden was luckier, or wiser. She got to do the thing she loved most, and she got to live a full life. Today, the airfield in Bentonville is named in her honor, and an independent school for students in grades 6 through 12 was also named for her in 2017. Charlie Allison is the executive editor at University Relations at the University of Arkansas. His Wednesday accounts of U of A history on Ozarks at Large are a nod to the first 150 years of the University of Arkansas. You can learn more about observations of the sesquicentennial at 150.uark.edu. KUAF and NPR go deeper than other news stations. From the ground in Ukraine to front lines of Arkansas hospitals battling COVID-19, we take you with us. Your contribution helps put reporters in the thick of important stories from D.C. to Eureka Springs. And your support during our on-air fundraiser, beginning Monday, March 28th, can keep this vital reporting on the air. Donate during the spring on-air fundraiser, beginning March 28th. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, Cobblestone Farms, sustainable agriculture nonprofit in West Fayetteville, is growing food to market and to donate to hunger relief. So we're currently standing in our uh, greenhouse. We, we refer to it as our propagation house. We're starting, we have everything from uh, bok choy in here. We just transplanted or we just moved out some uh, uh, radishes this morning. Um, there's some cilantro over there. That story from Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline for a look tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF. And you can listen wherever you may be with the free KUAF app. We've talked a lot about vaccinations the past few years, and most of that discussion has been, understandably, about shots designed to help keep COVID-19 at bay. We're going to spend the next few minutes thinking about another vaccination, one recommended for all young people, 
as a way to prevent several kinds of cancer. The HPV vaccination has proven to be a safe and incredibly effective tool against several cancers, including cervical cancer. Yet in the South and Arkansas, vaccination rates lag behind the rest of the country. Dr. Heather Brandt is the director of the HPV Cancer Prevention Program at St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. She and her team are working on raising awareness of the vaccination, and we talked with her yesterday about the vaccine and about HPV. HPV, or human papillomavirus, is a very common virus that affects everyone, both women and men, and can cause six types of cancer, including cervical, vaginal, vulvar, anal, penile, and oral and throat cancers. And if you look at the data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC, nearly 80 million Americans, that's one out of every four people, are infected with the virus. And of the those millions, nearly 36,000 will be diagnosed with an HPV cancer this year, and more than 200,000 will be diagnosed with cervical precancer. Now, the good news is there is a vaccine that's available. Exactly. Fortunately, there is an established, safe, and effective vaccine that provides long-lasting protection against HPV cancers, and it's available, and it serves as a vital tool in broad cancer prevention. In fact, HPV vaccination is recommended for everyone aged 9 to 26 years and for some people aged 27 to 45 years. But HPV vaccination coverage in the United States has been slow and uh, lower than the National Healthy People 2030 goal of 80%. Is the vaccine readily available? It is available. Um, It's most readily available to those who are 18 and younger, so in that 9 to 18-year-old age group, either through private or commercial insurance that their parents or caregivers may have, and also through the federal Vaccines for Children program that makes sure that every child in the United States can be fully vaccinated with all recommended vaccines. So when we get into the adult population, it's a little more hit or miss, But there is still coverage available for those who are over age 18 to be able to access this cancer prevention vaccine. Uh, So, you know, 10, 11, 12, I think you said starting at nine, it's a Mm two-dose procedure, correct? So it's two doses for nine to 14-year-olds, and anyone 15 and over will need three doses. And HPV vaccination provides the most protection when it's given before the 13th birthday. And ongoing studies and safety testing continue to show how important it is to get vaccination during this age range. So So that would be between the ages of nine and 12. But it's also not too late uh, to get vaccinated Um, if someone is already over the age of 12. There still may be some benefit for vaccination for them, too. And I've seen statistics that show in populations where uh, young people get the the vaccination process, the rates of these cancers can drop something like 85 to 90 percent. That's correct. And so while HPV is very common, we're fortunate that most of the cancers and diseases caused by HPV are relatively rare, but you can be certain to be protected with HPV vaccination because it's been shown to prevent 90% of these cancers and precancers. And in other countries where HPV vaccination coverage is high, such as in Australia, Australia is on track to eliminate cervical cancer, zero cervical cancer cases in the year 2030. And that's because of how well this vaccine works to get rid of these HPV cancers. Zero percent in about seven years? That's right. Australia started vaccinating as soon as the vaccines were shown to be safe and work well. And they've just continued to increase the proportion of people who've been vaccinated. And here in the United States, we continue to work to build confidence in vaccinations for parents and caregivers, for those who are making decisions about vaccinations for their family to show that HPV vaccination is 
very safe, and it's very effective. It's also widely available. And when we look at the data, it's unfortunate that in the parts of our country where we see the highest rates of HPV cancers, we see the lowest rates of HPV vaccination coverage. And that tends to be in the south and southern, southeastern United States and the Intermountain West. So, for example, in Arkansas, Arkansas falls about five percentage points below the United States average as of 2019 and fell a little bit further behind, almost 10 percentage points as of the 2020 data. So there's a real chance for our region to improve and make sure that kids are protected today from cancers they could develop in the future. And again, if if someone's hearing this and realizes they have someone in their life who is in that optimal age, should be getting vaccinated, likely all they have to do is talk to their general practitioner or community clinic or a pharmacy? All of those. Uh, Most of the time, children are getting vaccinated uh, in pediatricians' offices or health centers, and all of those are going to carry the vaccination or have it available through another source. So it is widely available and generally is available at low or no cost to everyone. And we've talked about young people getting vaccinated. One reason that adults past a certain age don't is it's pretty much the effectiveness. I mean, we've been exposed to HPV already, right? So that's one of the arguments, and we still encourage vaccination through age 26 regardless, because even if someone has been exposed to one type, they may not have been exposed to all the types included in the vaccine, which is called Gardasil 9, that's available here in the United States. So there still may be some protection. And then for people who are older, um, age 27 to 45, the recommendation is to talk to their healthcare provider. They also may still be benefit from vaccination. We know that the response in 9 to 12-year-olds to this vaccine is really strong, and they build up great, long-lasting immunity to HPV that provides them with a lifetime of protection. Dr. Heather Brandt is the director of the HPV Cancer Prevention Program at St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital and talked with us yesterday about the program's work to raise the HPV vaccination rate in Arkansas and across the South. The hospital recently launched Path to a Brighter Future, a new public awareness campaign aimed at family vaccination decision makers. You can learn more at stjude.org forward slash HPV. There's a refugee crisis because of Russia's war. Hundreds of thousands of people have fled. State of Ukraine, a new podcast from NPR, has episodes available now with reporters on the ground, conversations with politicians and officials, everything you need to know about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, with multiple episodes offered each day. Learn about the conflict's past, its possible futures, and what each new development means for the rest of the world. State of Ukraine, a new podcast from NPR, Available now at npr.org slash podcasts. This is KUAF 91.3, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and War Eagle. Ozarks at Large is produced by Timothy Dennis inside the Herald and Blanchcock News Studio. And contributors today included Jonathan Reeves with our partner station KASU in Jonesboro. Joy McGowan and Anisha Simpson with the podcast Resilient Black Women and Charlie Allison. Resilient Black Women, by the way, produced by Lee Wood. Additional material on today's show provided by the hardworking news staff at KUAR Radio, public radio for Central Arkansas and Little Rock. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. You can find out more about Daryl online wherever you find out more about music. KUAF's underwriting director, by the way, is Rhonda Diller. Don't forget, our on-air fundraiser will begin next Monday. That's March 28th. You can always make a contribution online at supportkuaf.com. We'll return with a Thursday edition of Ozarks at Large tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. You can listen to us wherever you are by going to KUAF.com. You can find out about past shows and stories and interviews at OzarksAtLarge.com. Thanks for being along with us today. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellums. Please take care of yourself. Stay safe. Get rest. We'll talk again tomorrow.